Yes, I know. It has been forever since we've uploaded a new episode. But if you could all put down your pitchforks for like two seconds, I'll apologize for having a shorter season last semester. Your girl was in the educational trenches. And hey, I may have lost a lot of battles, but I won the war in time to make it for our final season of Her Story with IUS TV. That is so insane to think. I'm probably going to get very emotional about this in the next few weeks, but for right now, I am your host, Mary Jane, and I want to welcome you back to Her Story, your epicenter for badass historical women and half-assed comedy. For our final season, trust me guys, we are going all out. Get ready for new and returning guests, more experts potentially weighing in on what is literally their professional field, and of course, the most dynamic leading ladies history tried and failed to erase. We are talking about charm, leadership, cultural innovators, and the brilliant minds that have created the world we know today. But for right now, we are covering a topic often touched on but never really explored. And in a lot of people's opinion, for a good reason. Brace yourselves because we are doing a deep dive into the role of the royal mistress. That's right, we have talked about queens, we've talked about courtesans, scientists, writers, but we've never really talked about the elephant in the room, the royal mistress. It's popped up a couple times, but why build up? Why not just go straight in for it? If you're a fan of history, well, I hope you're a fan of history if you're listening to this, but if you're a fan of history, trashy CW shows, and more drama than the real housewives... You've come to the right place. Hold on to your ridiculously poofy 18th century Versailles hats because this is going to be a wild ride. Also, this episode goes out to my friend Maggie because she unfortunately cannot be here to record. We're going to touch on some pretty famous names today. I know everyone's sitting here being like, oh my god, Anne Boleyn and the wives of Henry VIII. Yes, we're going to touch on that a little bit. But we're also going to look at the cultural institution of mistresses mistressing mistresses of Europe in the Middle Ages and into the Enlightenment period, why this was such a coveted role and what it meant culturally to be a mistress. So again, fair warning, we are going to be talking not about anything explicit, but we are going to be talking about infidelity, mention sex, nothing explicit, but just so you know, and if at any point you feel uncomfortable, I can't stop you from turning the episode off, so we're going for it anyway. Last season, what are the consequences? The idea of the royal mistress feels pretty weird to us. It all starts with admitting that a lot of ambitious women achieved power through what most scholars have called glorified sex work. For a second, let's put on our 3D historical perspective glasses. So, in Europe's ye olden days... Nobility were married based on alliances and social standing, regulated by strict Christian rules on divorce and separation. Marriage was about stability and securing your position in society, as well as having heirs. You weren't expected to love your partner. And that's where the mistress came in. The romantic partner a powerful man could choose for himself. 
Concerns and outrage about a king or lord having a mistress were usually more about this woman being a social climber who had influence over said guy. Not so much about the whole infidelity part, although at times this could conflict with the image of etiquette and graciousness that the nobility prided themselves on. But okay, I'm throwing a lot at you. Let's narrow in here. Why would any woman want to become the mistress and not the wife? Well, a mistress can be in control of her own finances, collecting estates and money and gifts all in her own name that her benefactor would give her. She controls her body, who she takes on as clients or confidants. Ambitious, intelligent women can become advisors and patrons of charity and the arts, no matter what social status they were born into. There's an association of mistresses being huge party girls, too. This isn't super far off, but it's another important thing to address before we really jump into some biographies. But it's true. If you were the mistress to a wealthy and influential dude, you were likely a social leader at the center of all revels and events. Mistresses were given expensive gifts, usually really nice jewelry, and yes, sometimes houses or castles, and enjoyed luxury due to their station and proximity to the king. And because they were at the forefront of court life, mistresses were often credited with being leaders in the fashion world. Again, these women are often slut-shamed for their relationships, and we tend to knock mistresses from intelligent political players to just being frilly, silly side pieces. But if you don't believe me that a mistress was an established social and influential position, let's take a little tour of Venice. Around 1565, an article was published listing, and this is the title, The Catalog of All the Principal and Most Honored Courtesans of Venice, listing prices, attributes, and where to find 212 courtesans who were listed as the most cultured and premier sex workers in the city. The catalog actually acts as a map for understanding entertainment districts and the city layout. There actually, I read through huge thesis reports that were studying how Venice as a city was districted off by the mistresses. You can literally map the city based on sex. Courtesans in Venice are a really cool way to look at the social status of these women. Highly educated, glamorous, and connected to wealthy patrons, these women were at the low end of the upper class and threatened pre-existing patriarchal structures with their mere existence, which is wildly fascinating. The idea of a mistress or courtesan feels pretty patriarchal, right? Like rich dude cheating on his wife, throwing out gifts to the girl he's seen on the side. That feels that feels pretty capital P patriarchy there. Yet these women were able to use their own bodies to their advantages, providing the opportunity for education and participation in the arts. This actually made a lot of poets and intellectuals feel threatened because now these women were encroaching on the sacred club of geniuses. So what does that mean? Well, let's take a look at Veronica Franco, one of the most famous mistresses of the time. The daughter of another esteemed courtesan, Paola Francesca, Veronica was raised in her mother's footsteps. Veronica was not only a courtesan, she was an avid poet and writer because the more educated you were 
and the better fashion you had, the better chance you had of attracting a wealthy patron who you could match on an intellectual level. We don't remember Veronica just for her work as a famous courtesan. We remember her as an avid poet and writer. She challenged the perception of femininity as weak and vindictive, speaking out against writers who defamed her character and preyed on vulnerable women. She was a mother to three children of all different fathers and supported their education and her entire household through her relationships. She was a celebrated intellectual whose position and connections were established through her work as a courtesan. Literally, Veronica was at the height of intellectual and social society, all as an unmarried woman, with children with multiple ongoing relationships. It sounds pretty liberating, actually, when we think about how this is a position women today are shamed for, and that she was doing it publicly and with much celebration. But that's not to say being a mistress was without its dangers. Frowned upon by many staunch Christians, and those against female intellectuals, many courtesans were subjected to public ridicule or worse. In fact, one of the tutors in Veronica's household accused her of magic and witchcraft. And although her defense was sound and she was acquitted, the accusation damaged her reputation. If you like witches, head back to season 5 for another deep dive into the feminine urge to bathe in the moonlight and turn ungrateful boyfriends into plagues of locusts or whatever it is dudes think girls do at sleepovers. So yeah, being a mistress was sometimes not so glamorous. Usually when you were a mistress to a very powerful man, you were someone to make alliances with. You had the ear of the king as a bedmate, as a companion, and oftentimes that could get a lot of people on your side who play nice with you because they want to play nice with the king. Also because courtesans and mistresses were usually really well-educated and intelligent women, they could act as really helpful advisors and could become involved in politics and court affairs. So again, another reason you wanted to play nice to the mistress. Again, doesn't always have happy endings. So undoubtedly, as we mentioned at the top, when you tuned into this episode, there was one person you wanted to hear about, and far be it from me to deny you. So let's start on the most famous, maybe probably not mistress, of the middle, was she middle ages? Of the 16th century, we'll just do that. Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn lived from 1500 to 1536 and was born to a respected English courtier, but was raised at French court and groomed into high society. When she returned to England, she was made lady-in-waiting for Queen Catherine of Aragon, wife of Henry VIII. If you don't know anything about Henry VIII, there's a great musical about how much he sucks, by the way, called Six. Henry VIII is famous for having six wives. We've touched on a few of them before in this series, mostly touching whenever he's brought up about how much I hate him. The only funny thing Henry VIII ever did was try to be the first Batman when he attempted vigilante justice by beating up criminals in the streets, wearing disguises, and eventually getting arrested for it. But I digress. So, yeah, this whole situation is about to get really complicated. So, Henry had a wife named Catherine, the Infanta of Spain, Princess of Spain, who gave him a daughter. We're clear on that? Henry VIII, married to Catherine. But 
he started to get a bit of a thing for Anne. And when I say a bit of a thing, I mean ignoring her attempts to shove him off and writing her a lot of love letters where he said he low-key, like, desired her carnally, which, like, no, don't slide into DMs like that. Just say hi. Just ask how her day is doing. Don't say you want to have sex right off the bat. That's no. But, yeah, so Henry was attracted to Anne, who he made lady-in-waiting to his wife. Anne's other sister was named Mary. And at this time, Mary was actively mistress to Henry VIII, right? So Henry has a mistress named Mary. He wants to sleep with Mary's sister, both of whom work for his wife. So very messy. As you can see, things get pretty confusing in all this. And one of the big questions is whether or not Anne was actually a mistress. It's no secret Henry was infatuated with her and actively broke off his marriage to Catherine and split from the Catholic Church in order to make Anne his wife, hoping to have a son with her. Some list their relationship as lasting about six years before their marriage, but whether or not Anne was a mistress is a big question. Henry's wandering eyes famously didn't stop after the marriage. Displeased at not having a son with Anne and her being outspoken and a savvy politician, Henry continued his affairs with more demure women. Anne was now trapped in the same cycle that she'd started. She was now Queen Catherine, forced to watch as Henry courted her ladies-in-waiting in front of her. Eventually, Anne fell out of favor and was accused of adultery and treason, resulting in her execution. All because, stemming from the fact, or she didn't have a son. Her lady-in-waiting and Henry's actual mistress, Jane Seymour, became queen after her death. As for Mary Boleyn, it's believed her two children were actually fathered by Henry. So yeah, her brother-in-law fathered her two kids, which is, that's tough. That's, this is messy. If you're having trouble following along with any of this, that's fair. I need a diagram myself to figure this out. But yeah, anyway, Mary eventually had to marry someone else, and she married this guy who was a soldier with not a lot of connections and didn't tell anyone until she got pregnant, and Anne and Henry got pissed about that and kicked her out of court. Um, Henry never acknowledged Mary's children as his own, but he did acknowledge that he had one illegitimate son. We could do an entire podcast on Henry's infidelity, honestly. It's thought that he had, like, up to eight mistresses. Maybe. Probably more. He had a lot of affairs. But again, if you're a king, you can kind of just do whatever you want. It's just, I think we get really bizarre at the idea of him cheating on Anne Boleyn because she was apparently so hot, he broke away from an entire, like, thousand-year-old religion just to legally sleep with her. So we get a little, we get a little turned around by that and whether or not the emotional connection counts as some kind of relationship without them. It's a, you could honestly... I read a lot of articles about this, guys. I read some lectures. I'm probably just rambling right now, but really, if you have an opinion, give me some... Chime in in the comments, because my God. My God, Anne Boleyn is a complicated one. Usually, being a mistress can be pretty dangerous. But that's not to say all mistresses were stuck in this cycle of shame and constricting etiquette. The position was extremely versatile. 
For example, here are two of my favorite royal mistresses of all time, the two most unusual ones of all. So first we have Nell Gwen, mistress to King Charles II of England. Nell was one of the first women to ever act on stage in England and was an outspoken badass. She became the favorite mistress of the king and handled her detractors with nerves of steel. When people started throwing rocks at her carriage and calling her a Catholic whore, mistaking her for Charles' French mistress, Louise de Curlon, Nell leaned out the window and smiled, telling the mob, Good people, you are mistaken. I am a Protestant whore. In a similar incident, her coachman started defending her honor when a local dude started calling Nell a whore, and she stopped the fight by saying, Hey, I am a whore. Find something else to fight about. She would actually go on to have a son with King Charles and, again, use unorthodox methods to ensure that her son was protected and provided for. So one day, Charles came over to visit them, and Nell called out to the boy, shouting, Little bastard, come say hi to your father. Charles was, I'd say, rightly horrified that she would call the kid that, and Nell said if Charles wanted her to call the boy something else, he'd better give him an official title. And not long after, the boy was made Earl of Buford, a position created just for him. So, yeah, Nell Gwynn. Little different than Anne Boleyn, if you want to look at it like that, but... Yeah, just a romantic partner who used her relationships and advantage to not only secure her own status, but protect her family. Another very unusual mistress was Katharina von Wartenberg, who lived from 1674 to 1734. She was royal mistress to Frederick I of Prussia, but they were never romantically involved. Frederick was deeply in love with his wife, Sophia Louise. Good on him. But it was really fashionable to have a royal mistress, someone who led social and cultural circles, and in some extreme cases, took the pressure off of a queen by having attention shift to another prominent female figure. So Frederick made Katharina the official mistress, not to have sex with her, but to establish her as an influential woman at court. And believe it or not, it was super fashionable for a king to have a mistress. So yeah, mistresses had this very weird relationship with queens where a lot of times they could coexist really well together and relied on each other to survive. That is not always the case, though. King Henry II of France had a mistress named Diane de Poitiers, who he was madly in love with, gave her castles, jewels, and made her really like the first lady of court which his wife, Catherine de Medici, was not pleased by. Again, if you've seen Rain, you've probably seen a very dramatized CW version of this. But again, like, it's fair for Catherine de Medici, one of the supposedly most violent and powerful people of all of Europe, to be mad that her husband had a mistress. I think that's, I get it. But also, there was a very well-established social position for the mistress to be leader of kind of, I don't want to say pop culture, but yeah, literally pop culture in the Renaissance. But of course, the moment Henry was on his deathbed, Catherine kicked Diane out of the palace because she hated her and hated that she had a higher position than her at court, even though Catherine was queen of France. So yeah, mistress is, it's a big deal. 
Zeroing in on France, when we think of mistresses, it's hard not to jump to the luxury and debauchery of French court, a.k.a. Versailles. Of all the mistresses of Versailles, and probably of Europe, none is more famous than the royal mistress, Madame de Pompadour. By the way, the National Gallery in London has a really weird biography of her life. It's not Cleopatra presented by History.com bad, just different. So Madame de Pompadour has been the subject of too many books and articles to count, mostly because she's the epitome of a woman reaching unparalleled heights of power through both sex and intellect. Madame de Pompadour was born December 27, 1721, as Jean-Antoinette Poisson, highly educated to become a wife of an advantageous man, especially given that her father had to flee the country when she was a kid due to his black market scandals. So she was educated to make a very good impression on people. Pompadour met King Louis XV at a ball in 1745. She was dressed as a coquette shepherdess. He was dressed as a tree. Neat. Versailles was really into costume parties. It was a whole thing. Um, but she may have also been Diana the Huntress because they may have met in the woods once when she was trying to get his attention. It's a whole thing, but very Versailles. Madame de Pompadour had a reputation for her dazzling intellect and charm in a lot of social circles of intellectuals, which kind of preceded her as a really strong reputation that got the king's attention. According to the National Gallery, her carriage was actually spotted outside his apartment that very night. The National Gallery is thriving on tea, by the way. And that year, Pompadour became the official mistress of the king and had an apartment in Versailles directly above his apartment. He actually built a hidden staircase to connect their rooms to ensure private visits. He made her a marquess and gave her her own estate, introducing her to the court as a full-fledged member of the nobility. She even became the king's private secretary and relayed his orders, making her an incredibly powerful figure at court. She staged plays and offered a private space, a fantasy for intimacy, for the often shy king to get away from the pressures of court. And Pompadour was in it for the long game. And this is where we see a really smart move a lot of mistresses employed that kind of separates from the whole Catherine Diane story. So the Queen of France, Louis XV's wife, one day approached Pompadour to speak of a mutual acquaintance, opening up the opportunity for Pompadour to later address the queen. Because you know etiquette, she can't really go up to the queen and talk to her out of the way without first being recognized. But Madame de Pompadour was brilliant. She really favored the royal children and to the queen declared her undying loyalty. Again, let's remember, marriages were political. Queen Marie Lezenskia had her deposed father's status as former king of Poland to worry about, gave birth about 10 times, and was a mother and beloved Catholic patron of charitable works in France. She didn't have time to babysit her husband's ego, let alone have all this time to run court festivities and building projects on top of all her other roles. So here comes an intelligent mistress who swears her loyalty to the queen and makes sure to respect her position. And that wasn't uncommon. A lot of queens actually befriended their husband's mistresses. Pompadour was elevated to the rank of lady-in-waiting for the queen, the literally highest honor you could have as a woman in Versailles. 
and Marie Lezenskia, favorite pompadour out of all the royal mistresses Louis XV would have. Interestingly, Madame de Pompadour would actually transition out of the role of mistress. She and the king remained incredibly good friends, and she stayed at court. This might sound really weird, but Pompadour had solidified her position as one of the most powerful people in all of Versailles, maybe in all of the country, because of her alliances with ministers, her work in building projects, and as the king's secretary and confidant. Pompadour moved into even more luxurious quarters on the first floor and continued to be a patron of the arts and education. She sponsored building projects and factories and would influence the king's foreign policy, which would eventually make her a scapegoat for the Seven Years' War, but that's a whole other story. And the king even bought her Hotel de Evreux, now known as the Elise Palace, in Paris to stay while she split her time between the city and the court. Now, this is all while they are still just friends. Madame de Pompadour actually died at 42 from tuberculosis, ending her 20-year friendship with the king. But she left behind quite the legacy. She did, in fact, embody the luxury and sensuality a royal mistress is known for. She put on and starred in romantic plays for the king, all to flatter him. Loved chocolate, truffle soup, and champagne. You go, girl. And my personal favorite had the Pompadour pink shade named after her. But Madame de Pompadour also used her royal intimacy and proximity to build a career as a powerful patron and advisor, separate of her role as a mistress. A mistress we view on the opposite end of the spectrum from Madame de Pompadour is Madame du Barry, the last mistress of Louis XV. Yep, she was the royal side piece that followed after Pompadour's death. And at this time, Louis was already pretty elderly. He lost his son, his wife, and friend Pompadour, but became dazzled with Dubarry when she was introduced to court in 1768. A newly married countess, she made a lot of enemies because one of the king's advisors, who had favored de Pompadour, was pissed that his own sister hadn't become royal mistress. Weird, weird thing to be mad about, but sure. Also, Dubarry who was 25 when she became mistress, came from a very low-class family. She'd grown up as a shopkeeper, and it was her beauty, not her station, that brought her to the top of society, which a lot of nobles were annoyed with. Yet her influence over the king and status as a generous patron of the arts did win her some support at court. The same advisor who hated her was actually eventually kicked out of Versailles, for his annoying behavior to him, so Dubarry outlasted him. And the infamous Marie Antoinette, who strongly disliked her, put aside her disdain for Dubarry to actually address her at court, only deigning to say, There are a lot of people at Versailles today, to which Dubarry responded, Yes, there are. With one conversation, Dubarry secured the recognition of a princess, which solidified her station as a low-born girl rising to be the mistress of the most powerful man potentially in Europe. Dubarry lived in the same chambers as de Pompadour and enjoyed her own estates and some really gorgeous jewelry. But with the death of Louis XV, she was banished from court due to her unpopularity and the rising tension of revolutionary sentiment in France. Tragically, after the French Revolution, Madame de Berry was actually executed via guillotine in 1793 for anti-revolutionary sentiment. 
Basically, she'd been super rich when everybody was super poor. Had Loki kind of flaunted it like everybody else? And since she'd been dating a king and everybody hated kings, you know, honestly, it was not hard criteria to get your head chopped off. I actually went to the square where Marie Antoinette was later executed. I think de Pompadour was actually... No, excuse me. I think Dubarry was actually executed there. And then Robespierre was executed there. Robespierre was wild. If you, The cult of the sun or whatever that dude was up to. If you want a rabbit hole that feels like an acid trip, Google Robespierre. He had it going on. But it's interesting, right? Like, everyone hated Dubarry, but... She still had a lot of influence as the royal mistress, even though she wasn't as successful, arguably, at it as de Pompadour. King Louis XVI, who followed his grandfather and was married to Marie Antoinette, the last king of France, is actually, by modern scholars, kind of... They kind of criticize him for not taking a mistress. Kind of like his grandfather, he was quieter, he was shyer... And he seemed to be very close and or infatuated with Marie Antoinette, his wife. But because he didn't have a royal mistress to take the pressure off of Marie, a lot of hate fell on her from the nobility and from the lower class, who saw her as the epitome of foreign influence, taking over Versailles, and of excess wealth. Which, you can argue, were they wrong, were they right? Who's to say? A lot of people were starving, so I'll give them that. But again, like the royal mistress was a position to take pressure off the queen as well as be a leader in upper class society. So here we are. The courtesans of Venice. Anne Boleyn. Her sister Mary Boleyn. The crazy-ass women of Versailles. It's a good thing we don't have to deal with modern mistresses, right? Well, sort of. Let's take a look at it. When we're looking at the royal mistress kind of trope phenomenon today, we see it less in... We get less interested about it as people, as leaders cheating on their wives than as celebrities cheating on their wives. Let's jump to the main example everyone's thinking of the British royal family. When we're thinking about the British royal family and you're thinking about marriage and mistress, there's nothing... I could do or say to stop the freight train of fury that probably crosses your mind at the thought of Diana and Camilla, the two women involved in now King Charles's life. Charles had a very traditional view of what was going to happen. He married his wife for political and social reasons, Diana, and kept Camilla as his mistress as his chosen partner. Of course, Diana, who is young and literally like so she was 19 it was like 25 or 26 so maybe older it was gross it was messed up it was wrong but anyway she was thrust into this position thinking that she was marrying a guy who loved her and that just was not the case so you get this huge split between people who are realizing the traditional role of Camilla as the mistress and going to her to influence Charles and respecting her position, and you see people who are outraged that he was violating his marriage and Diana. You still kind of see it, like the outrage that everyone has when the crown came out, 
when Camilla was crowned queen, on the anniversary of Diana's death every year. It's still a big thing, but that was kind of the last traditional scandal we've seen. But it still exists in little ways. So right now, the royal mistress versus queen debate has fallen onto the next generation of royal women, Meghan and Kate. So if you follow anything about the royal family, you probably know much more than I do. But think about it this way. Kate is the traditional mother, wife, future queen. And we don't really get that outraged when all these articles come out about William having dated her friends and taking his mistresses to parties, supposedly. But it's it's pretty clear he's cheating on her. But, like, what are you doing, man? Don't be daddy's boy. Just be nice to your wife. But again, we want these marriages to seemingly work out because we have this whole fairy tale Disney royal wedding idea. But again, the idea that you as a powerful dude should be in love with your wife is a very recent concept historically. So we see Kate getting all this praise and glory for being the traditional quiet wife and Meghan Markle is getting shit on by the British media because her husband, Harry, is in love with her and values their family and health over being hounded by the press. It's this crazy idea of a king or prince getting shit on by his ministers and society because he actively shows love for his mistress. It's crazy that we still have all these ideas of powerful women attractive ambitious women seducing and bewitching powerful men in kind of traditional sense we see it today in the second and the third wife the social climbers the celebrity marriages that never seem to last the idea of a royal mistress though it's changed it hasn't really gone away so what does all this mean for us right you're like Mary Jane you've been talking for like a half hour cool Love the mistresses. Love to see it. Why should we care? Well, for much of European history, mistresses were the transgressors of social boundaries. They bridged this gap between social classes, education, and cultural influence in ways that other women didn't have the societal freedom to. They were able to choose their partners find love and power outside of marriage, and even raise their children to benefit from the system. It's really weird to sit here and praise the genius of these politicians and sex workers because we have such a negative view of women using their bodies for power in relationships like this. But I think it's important to consider that Whether or not you approve of the whole institution of being a mistress, it's a powerful segue to study in terms of understanding how we as women understand our own influence and using that to our advantage. There's a really cool professor who was doing all this research on on this, and she said, I hope you can at least agree that this is interesting. You don't have to approve, but let's see it as interesting what these women were able to accomplish and who they were able to become in society. 
Not saying that you should go out and become a royal mistress, but it's definitely something to look at. An unusual role model, perhaps, but these are badass women who went after what they want and changed society, changed their lives, changed the world. All right, I think that constitutes as, as much as an ending as I can give you. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you, and I can't wait to see you next week for another woman who made her story. Thank you.